As we begin our sermon, the sermon is titled, The Jesus Paradigm. The Jesus Paradigm. You may be asking, what is a paradigm? What is a paradigm? Philosopher of science Thomas Kuhn described the paradigm as a set of beliefs, theories, or worldview that is accepted and has become established as truth. Accepted truth. Author Sean Covey wrote, A paradigm is the way you see something, your point of view, a frame of reference or belief. This is what a paradigm is, what you believe and how you operate under that belief. It's like an operating system, right, for our phones and our computers. It's our mental operating system. And, but paradigms do shift over time. They do change, and what we call that change is called a paradigm shift, and that's the topic today. Growing up in the 80s and the 90s in the San Gabriel Valley, uh, I grew up in Monterey Park. I love going to Music Plus. I love going to Tower Records. That was a big deal when Tower Records showed up at, in, on Atlantic. It's not there anymore. Sleeping over at my friend's house, UG, we used to go to uh, Blockbuster Rentals, and along with 65 other million Americans, we would rent movies in the weekend and watch them. That was kind of a fun thing to do. However, today, anyone that knows anything about what's going on today knows that these companies either do not operate the same way or they don't even exist anymore. Why is that? Why is that? Well, because a paradigm shift took place in the business of media the media business. For example, Netflix. I don't have Netflix, but I know many of us do. And Netflix understood that streaming was the future for media, right? iTunes, those are the things that have taken over. But Netflix realized that subscriptions are more important than rentals. And they'd rather have charged a flat fee that where you could Pick all the movies that you want, and you can keep the movies as long as you want. Documentaries, anything you like. You don't have to worry about losing the DVDs or the VHS cassette or the beta cassette tapes that we used to have, right? Netflix doesn't have to worry about that anymore. They basically also, with the help of COVID, I think, captured the, the, the convenience of streaming from home. You don't have to leave your house anymore. Someone calls you, hey, did you check out this movie? You just click on it and it's there in a matter of seconds. So a paradigm shift happens and, and, and what happens is when new ideas or concepts come, they make, they make the old paradigm obsolete. I mean, it doesn't work anymore. And it becomes the new normal, the new normal. And today, we're going to see how Jesus attacks an old paradigm. This is very important for us to understand. And we're going to find out you either adopt the new paradigm or you go out of business permanently. This is how it works. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 2. We're going to be at verse 18 to 22. Mark chapter 2. It's the second book in the New Testament after Matthew. Mark, if you went to Luke, you went too far. And uh, please rise as, we, as you turn to your phones or your Bibles little background. Jesus encounters his, uh, the next confrontation. This time he is confronted by the disciples of the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist. John the Baptist's disciples. I'll explain how they got into the picture. And really this old paradigm that they held runs into a brick wall today. And the new paradigm is presented. So let's read God's word together. Mark 2 verse 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. 
And they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast. Can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Verse 20, But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Verse 21, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it and the new from the old, and your worst terror results. Verse 22, no one puts new wine into old wineskin. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost in the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskin. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy and perfect word. I pray that your spirit will allow us to understand what you're saying so that we will love and treasure your son, Jesus Christ, even more. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Before we begin, you may be wondering, a friend asked me, is the Bible even relevant for us today? The concepts and the things talked about in the Bible. I mean, we just read about fasting. We just read about a first century wedding. We read about patching up clothes with holes in it. We just read about wineskin. What is that about? Do these ancient practices and ancient metaphors have anything to do with us in 2022? And the answer is everything, has everything to do with us. And we're going to draw this out. And so to help us follow through the sermon, I'm going to give you the three kind of hangers uh, about this sermon, the Jesus paradigm shift. Number one, Jesus is confronted with the old paradigm. The old paradigm is going to confront Jesus. Number two, Jesus counters counters this confrontation with the new paradigm. Old paradigm, new paradigm, and third, and finally, Jesus calls for the paradigm shift. That's so you kind of mentally track along on our journey today, okay? Number one, our first hanger. Jesus is confronted with the old paradigm. The scene shifts now. Remember, earlier on in this chapter, Jesus was partying and having a banquet with tax collectors and sinners at Levi's house. There was a big party going on. And interesting, he goes from feasting to fasting is the topic now. Interesting enough, in verse 18, the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees come to Jesus and says, Why don't your disciples fast, Jesus? We thought you were a good and solid teacher, Jesus. So what is this fasting business about? Let's travel back in time a little bit. Perhaps some of us have an idea what fasting is about. But in essence, fasting is this. When you abstain from eating and drinking certain things. You abstain from food. And it's interesting as I researched this, Leviticus 16, which talks about the only prescribed fast in the Old Testament. There's only one where God commands the Israelites to fast. And that's the day of Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And really, the reason why the people were commanded to fast is to mourn for their sins, because the Day of Atonement represented the day when the Israelites, as a country, as a nation, as a people group, would remember their sinfulness against God. So that fasting was meant for mourning. In other references of the Old Testament, not prescriptions, but just descriptions of what happened, the, the Israelites would fast when emergencies arose, meaning enemies would come, when there's a fast, um, when there's a waiting, and when, when certain prophets were waiting to hear from the Lord, fasting took place. And so if fasting was just a once a year thing, unless 
this was happening during Yom Kippur, which it wasn't, why would the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees care so much to confront Jesus Christ? Why? Why? And it's basically tied into their old paradigm and how they saw life. In essence, piety is the, the, the vehicle which they presented, how committed they were to their religion, Judaism. And in Judaism, how you showed your piety or your commitment to God was through fasting, through praying, or giving, giving alms, tithing. And over a course of hundreds of years, many years, what happened was this. Man started adding and upping the ante to what even God required. This is called human tradition. Man started adding and adding and adding and adding, adding greater burdens upon the people of a, above and beyond what even God required. So instead of fasting once a year as a nation during Yom Kippur, they said, let's fast twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. In Luke 18, 12, the parable of the, uh, the Pharisee praying in the temple, he says, I f- he prays to God, there it is, a, a, a sign of piety, I fast twice a week. He's bragging to God, I fast twice, and I pay tithes of all that I get. Praying, fasting, and giving. This is where you reached varsity status in Judaism in that day. This is where you felt like, okay, I'm a mature follower of God. Okay? And it's interesting, you may be asking, well, I get why the Pharisees are there. We know they're legalists. We've been talking about them for a while. They're law keepers. They're the lawyers of Israel. But what about John the Baptist? I thought John the Baptist and Jesus were tight. I thought their followers would follow Jesus. Apparently, when John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes the sins away of the world, some of John the Baptist's disciples didn't follow Jesus. So a big group did, but some just said, Oh, okay. I'm not so sure about that, John the Baptist. And at this point, John the Baptist has been arrested by the authorities. John the Baptist, keep in mind now, what type of person was he? He lived in the wilderness. He wore camel's hair. He ate locusts and honey. He lived away from everyone. He was a minimalist. Now think about this now. He lived apart from society. He proved that he didn't eat anything. And I bet you fasting was just a normal part of his living. And if you admire people enough, you start to adopt what they do rather than what God says to do. And that becomes law. Does anyone come to mind when you think about that? Do you respect somebody so much that what they what they've shown as prudence becomes law in your life? And this is perhaps what happened with John the Baptist's followers. And really the heart behind the confrontation, it's, it goes back to their paradigm. And Jesus knew it in Matthew 6, 16. Jesus confronts hypocrisy and says, Whenever you fast, do not put a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed, piety, by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have, re- they have the reward in full. Kent Hughes, R. Kent Hughes writes about this situation. They actually whitened their faces, put ashes on their heads, wore their clothes in shoddy disarray, refused to wash, and looked as forlorn as, po- forlorn as possible. You could not be spiritual unless you were uncomfortable. I'm fasting. Ah, I can't eat with you today. Why? I'm fasting. 
You know, this is what I'm doing for God. They thought spirituality makes you do things you do not want to do and keeps you from doing the things you actually want to do. Interesting description. In other words, these disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees are saying, Jesus, you better take this fasting protocol seriously if we want want us to take you seriously. If you want to reach varsity status with us where we listen to you, you better start prescribing fasting to your people. Otherwise, you'd be a lesser teacher. You better, right? That's always the word of a legalist. You better. You have to. You better do this, right? That's legalism talk right there. So their paradigm, so what is this old paradigm that was downloaded into their minds and hearts over generation after generation after generation? I'll sum it up in this. Their paradigm was a religion of human achievement. Human achievement. It was merit-based. They trusted in their efforts. They trusted in their faithfulness rather than God's faithfulness, which was read earlier. They go beyond God's word and make legalistic demands upon others to be seen a certain way. Have you heard of what studio sweat is? Have you, what comes to mind here, studio sweat? Well, studio sweat was kind of a, a running joke that we had as we worked out. And players, in their fun, will sometimes splash water on their face and, and splash water on their clothes as if they've been working out hard and they get this artificial look. And sometimes even guys make grunting noises and make all kinds of noises to make it appear that they're getting after it pretty hard. This is athletic piety, just to be seen a certain way. We understand this. We understand this. Maybe even in your work, perhaps you know people at their office where, oh yeah, I came in earlier and and I'm going to leave later today. I mean, there's a way to elevate yourself by what you do, how much you sacrifice. It's even in the secular world. We understand this. But here's an application for us. Even in the Christian life, we may have our own version of studio piety. What do I mean by that? Here's some questions. Do we, simple things, good things, but not ultimate things. Do we carry our Bibles to be seen in a certain way? I'm bringing my Bible, which I think you should, but are you doing it to be seen a certain way? Here's another one. Do you endorse certain prominent preachers to be elevated and separate yourself from other people? As if we figured out the best teachers on the planet. Do we advertise to people how much we've been praying praying? Do we feel lifted up by how much we've sacrificed for God? This is what I gave up to follow God. That's piety. Studio piety. Do we even serve to be noticed by other people? Do we serve to gain value and respect and affirmation from other people? That's spiritual studio piety. Just to be seen. See, these are all good things. I'm I'm not saying these are bad things. These are really good things. These are things we want to promote. However, the heart behind it needs to be right. Otherwise, we're just following into another man's made system here. Similar to what happened 2,000 years ago. So that's what Jesus is confronted with. This old paradigm of human achievement. Now, how does the Lord respond? Let's examine how he takes a look here. Second hanger says, Jesus counters... Jesus counters with the new paradigm, not the old paradigm. He counters with the new paradigm. Verse 19 says this, And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, 
The attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? Jesus gives a question which gives a picture of a wedding. And what was a first century Palestinian wedding like? I mean, I, I've been invited to some weddings and some receptions recently. It's amazing. They, usually people rent out a ballroom. There's amazing food. There's music. People who never dance start dancing. I mean, it's an amazing thing. But in first century Palestine, it wasn't just one afternoon or one evening. It was a week-long, seven-day extravaganza. And really, this might have been the greatest week of the bride and groom's life as they're treated like kings and queens. This is a big celebration, of course. Food would have been a huge part of this celebration. Therefore, Jesus' point is this. At a wedding, do you fast? It's an obvious question. Of course not. It's inappropriate. It's out of the question. You do not fast. You eat. You drink. You celebrate. It's a joyful event. Because fasting is for mourning and waiting. It's for a funeral. That would be more appropriate for fasting for a funeral. It's for mourning over your sins. It's waiting to hear from God and what's next. But the wedding, the wait is over. It's happening. It's time to celebrate. It's time to celebrate. So the Lord's point was very clear. He gives us a very, gives the people a very clear point of why it's inappropriate to fast. The people in that day would have understood exactly what he's saying. And look what the second portion of verse 19 says. So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the bridegroom. This is a huge statement. How would the Pharisees have understood this statement? Is this. They knew what the Old Testament would have said. They understood the Old Testament. And what does the Old Testament say? Well, in Ezekiel, Hosea, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, talks about God being the bridegroom. As Brother James Kagawa read, Isaiah 54, uh, verse 5, it says this, For your husband is your maker, capital M, maker, whose name is Yahweh or the Lord of hosts. Isaiah gets very specific who he's talking about. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. So in no unclear terms, Jesus is saying, I am God. This is a big statement here. And the Pharisees who knew the Old Testament, like the back of their hand, knew exactly what Jesus was saying. He was making another divine claim. In other words, in the Old Testament, God has been, is the groom. Israel is the bride. In the New Testament, as spoken earlier, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this. He is the groom. And the church is the bride. We understand this metaphor. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm God, and why would you fast when God is with you? Why would you fast when God has come to make peace with all men? Why would you fast? Of course we're going to have a banquet. Of course we're going to celebrate, right? It's just common sense. Even using our own uh, uh, understanding of weddings, we would understand what Jesus is saying, but he takes it to a, another level, obviously. So the disciples of the Pharisees and John the Baptist, they missed it. They're operating under the old paradigm. They had a different thought. Their hearts were ticking off, off a different rhythm here. 
that old operating system working in them. And really their operating system, their old paradigm was a transactional paradigm, a conditional paradigm, more of a business paradigm with God. A paradigm of human achievement. I need to keep earning. I need to keep performing. I need to keep producing piety. A legalistic paradigm. Now it's interesting, the tax collectors and sinners who are uneducated perhaps to some levels and seen as the outcasts, they got it. See the irony there? The experts missed it, but the, but the common man, the known sinner, the tax collector, got it. Got it. A totally new paradigm was downloaded into them. They understood a new paradigm. The, 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 it was a relationship-based paradigm. It was a paradigm of divine achievement, a divine grace, not human achievement, a divine achievement. A covenantal paradigm, a, par- a paradigm of, of a promise made to them. This is how they saw this. And I was pointing out earlier how God is the faithful husband. He is the faithful one. Not based on our faithfulness, but his faithfulness. Just read Hosea, how Israel was not faithful, but God is faithful, right? Divine achievement. How is this relationship even possible? Who finances this wedding and this marriage? Well, verse 20, this is really the key verse here, verse 20. Jesus says this, But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away or snatched forcefully, taken, taken into custody from them, and then they will fast in that day. Jesus, in other words, is predicting his arrest and his crucifixion. He's predicting this is a predictive prophecy. He's predicting what's going to happen in somewhat near future. And in that day, when Jesus is arrested and killed and crucified on the cross, that will be a time for the disciples to mourn. We understand this because they will see that their own sins is what put Jesus on the cross. We realize this now, Christians. The reason why Jesus went to the cross is our sins. He obeyed the Father to atone for our sins. Every nail strike that was blown through his hands and his feet was because of our own sins. Do we mourn for this? Do we understand the weight of what has taken place? Do we take time to think about this, meditate on this, how expensive it was for our Lord and for our God? Bible says that no greater love than this, than one lays down his life for his friends. Jesus is the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In Ephesians 5.25, known by many of us husbands, says, Husband, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves Evergreen Baptist Church of San Gabriel Valley. Jesus loves the persecuted church in Ethiopia. Jesus loves his church that he died for her. That's convicting, right, men? Let's get our eyes off ourselves, but let's take a look at the level of faithfulness that requires for the Lord to do this. And really, the new paradigm is this. It's the religion of divine achievement, the Lord's achievements, the Lord's accomplishments, not about us. It's not about human achievement. 
In the 1500s, a man named Copernicus challenged the old paradigm. What was this old paradigm? For hundreds of years, man believed that the earth sat still in the center of the universe and the sun and all the planets and all the moon rotated around the earth. So man believed that the earth was the center of the universe. Copernicus challenged this old paradigm and realized that the sun is in the middle, sitting still in our solar system and all the planets and all the moon, the moons orbit around this sun. That's a paradigm shift that our people, mankind, realized. Now, a question for our church, an application for our church, and if you're a guest, for you as well. Who is at the center of your life? Who is at the center of your life? If you have an old paradigm, you're at the center of your life. If you have adopted the new paradigm, God is at the center of your life. If you have the old paradigm, your identity is based on what you do. If you have a new paradigm, our identity is based on what Jesus has done. Amen? Old paradigm is based on what we know. I'm going to say that clear. If you have an old paradigm, our identity is based on what we know. However, if you have adopted the new paradigm, our identity is based on who we know. Not what we know, who we know. It's more about knowing about Jesus. It's about knowing Jesus. This is the big difference. Now, do we know him like a husband, right? There's that metaphor. Do you know him that well? Have you been wedded to him? Have you entrusted your life to him? I know, men, that's kind of an interesting thought there, but this is what it is. The church is the bride of Christ. Have we been wedded to God? Or just know about God. Our identity is basically being in Christ, like two becomes one flesh, right? Marriage, any premarital counseling, we heard this before. Two becomes one flesh. My identity is I'm in Christ. Christ is in me. Here's some other thoughts here. In other words, I no longer have to, but I get to serve. We no longer work for our identity identity, we work out of our identity. Who we are in Christ is why we do what we do, not for who we are. It's about human achievement is jettisoned, that's abandoned, and it's about divine achievement. So as we work out of our identity, not for our identity, then we could serve joyfully in the church. We could give joyfully to the church. We could read the Bible joyfully. We could attend service joyfully. I don't have to go to service. I get to come to service and be worship the worship the God of the universe with all the Christians of Evergreen Baptist. I get to come on the Lord's Day. I get to sing with other people when normally I'm singing by myself in the car. I get to hear the voices sing. I get to pray corporately, have our leaders lead us in prayer time. I get to rather than I have to or I got to. I get to. Now let's transition to our third and final hanger here. Jesus calls for the paradigm shift. Jesus calls for the paradigm shift. Let me allow me to read verse 21 and 22. 
No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse terror results. Verse 22, no one puts in new wine into old wineskin. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost in the skin as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskin. These are two different illustrations that the Lord used, ancient illustrations known immediately what Jesus was talking about 2,000 years ago. Two ancient illustrations with the same point. They're really one and the same. But Jesus, like any good teacher, repeats himself. You know, and you want to repeat yourself in different ways and put the same points in different angles and different metaphors. And that's what Jesus does here. And um, let's let's address the first one. What does this mean? New new cloth sewed on, onto old garment patches. All right. Perhaps this is hard for us to relate today, right? I mean, we we use pre-shrunk clothes now. I see ripped jeans everywhere, so it looks like holes are a good thing these days. Back in my day. If I had a hole, my mom would put a patch on my jeans. You know, that's kind of how I grew up. But today seems like ripped jeans and holes are a good thing. Popular thing. So obviously what this is saying is if you put an unshrunk patch of cloth on a hole, that's already, on, a, on a garment that's already been shrunk, when you wash it, that patch will shrink and start tearing a greater hole in the garment. Simple, simple. Now, what about this new wineskin poured into old wineskin? That's more of a removed metaphor, you know. Basically, in that day, to produce wine, they needed a container. And what they would do is this. They would slaughter a goat or sheep and cut it at the neck. That will be the spout. And they would pull, 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 pull the skin off the animal, and they would tie up the limbs, seal off all the, uh, the, the holes. And in essence, they would uh, pour the wine into this bag of skin, and that would contain the wine. That's how they did it. And for any of us who know anything about beer or how wine is made and New wine would eventually ferment, and gases would would expand that container. And so Jesus' point is this. You cannot use old, brittle animal skin that's already been stretched out to the max because, because if you reuse that and you put new wine in it, it's going to expand, 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 and it's going to burst. The people would have understood what Jesus is talking about. New wine requires soft, supple skin to stretch, to grow with it. And our Lord is saying the old wineskin will not work with new wineskin. And if it bursts, that's a lot of wine. That's a lot of, can you imagine a whole animal uh, full of wine, that explodes, you lose leather, you lose the wine, it's a, it's a big loss. The point of both illustrations is this, is this. The old and new paradigms do not mix. You cannot mix the old with the new in this case. Mixing the two will be destructive. And you may be asking, well, pastor, what does this have to do with us? 
We're spending a lot of time talking about Judaism and, and, and new wineskin. Well, let me say, make it very plain here. The old paradigm, Jesus is addressing legalistic Judaism. 2,000 years ago, fasting, giving, praying, that's, that's kind of how the legalism and the uh, human achievement was accomplished. However, this is the point I want you to hear. This is the application for 2022 here. Legalistic Judaism, first century to 2022, I believe this describes every single false human religion that's been invented by man. Every religion, apart from Christianity, is a religion of human achievement. And I'm going to give you three prominent examples. And if you come out of any of these uh, backgrounds, praise God. Hopefully you would understand what I'm talking about. Islam. Every Muslim upon death is horrified by one thing. And this is what it is. It's the balancing scale. The balancing scale based on the five pillars of Allah, which are profession of faith, Praying five times a day while your posture towards Mecca, giving alms to the poor, fasting during Ramadan. It's interesting, some similar type of practices, right? And going on the Hajj, which is a pilgrimage to Mecca. And in that day when you die, you don't quite know if you're going to enter into heaven. You're wondering, did I do enough to tip the scales? That's human achievement. Buddhism. Where the goal is to reach nirvana. And, and how you do that is you follow the eightfold path of, or the eight rights. And these are the eight things. Did you have a right view? Did you have a right intent in everything you did? Did you have right speech? Did you have right behavior? Right livelihood? Did you have right effort? Did you have right awareness? Did you have right meditation? And what happens is that you keep being reincarnated, giving another chance every time out of the chute. So you're wondering, upon death, you're thinking, did I get it right this time? That's human achievement. Here's the third one. Roman Catholicism. Where they merge old wine with new wine in some ways as Jesus plus the sacraments administered by the Catholic Church. Where salvation is administered through the sacraments, meaning you need to believe in Jesus, plus you're required to be baptized under their church. You, you need to believe in Jesus, plus you need to be co- go under confirmation, a ceremony where you are, have the Holy Spirit imparted to you. You need to believe in Jesus and take, receive the Eucharist on a regular basis. This is their version of communion. You need to believe in Jesus, but also confess any mortal sins before you die. There's a lot of doing right there. That's Jesus plus. So in that day, you're wondering, did I, was I faithful enough to the sacraments administered by the church? There are only two religions in the world, the old paradigm, the religion of human achievement, and the new paradigm. And this is what the good news is all about. The new paradigm is this. The religion of divine achievement, the religion of divine grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace, through faith. And that not of yourselves. No human works. No human achievement. It is the gift of God, a free gift. Please receive this. Please. The offer of salvation is there. Not as a result of works. Human achievement so that no one may boast. No one could take credit for I deserve to go to heaven. Jesus saves, in a nutshell, by grace alone, 
through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen. This is what we're talking about. Do you believe this? This is the religion of divine achievement. Jesus plus something equals nothing. Jesus plus something equals nothing. It merits nothing. But Jesus plus nothing amounts to everything. And what the Lord is saying by these metaphors is this. We need to abandon all hope, all trust in our other works, righteousness. And surrender and throw ourselves at the feet of the Savior. This is what the Lord is calling us to do. In no unclear terms, the, the people, the Pharisees and John the Baptist disciples knew exactly what he's saying. In, in other words, he's saying, I'm not just an add-on into your lives. I'm not just an upgrade. I'm not just here to supplement your uh, married life or supplement your work life or to help you to accomplish your goals. Jesus is our life. And I, I'm grateful for this opportunity to preach this pivotal, providential sermon here. This is a powerful portion of Scripture. I want to address three groups here to our, not, to our non-believing guests. You don't identify as a Christian. We thank you that you're here. We're grateful that you're here. You're always welcome. This is why we're here. This is why we're here. Maybe you came from our visit yesterday, perhaps. If you're here for that, we're so grateful. But Jesus offers a warning in Luke 5.39. Write that down, Luke 5.39, in the parallel account of Luke talking about the wineskins. He says this. He makes a warning or a huge observation or insight. And no one, he, he, he says, Jesus, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. This is kind of scary. If you've been drinking the old wine, you don't want the new for he says, the old is good enough. That's frightening to me. Because if you, if you were growing up in a system that's been ingrained into your mind, generation after generation, you may not even understand the religion or the way of thinking, but you just know this is how your family's done it for years and years. That's very frightening to me. But guess what? If you're pricked today, and you know that you want to trust Christ you're not in that condition. You want to taste new wine. You know that old wine is bitter. You know that old wine is, 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 is draining. You know that old wine is not good for you. Because you know that none of us are able to achieve enough to please God. You know this. You know this. It's a burdensome system. You know this. And you want the new wine? Well, the Lord makes it clear. You must receive the new wine with new wine skin. Jettison the old. Whatever system that you believed in, you, you need to deny that and trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The earning, the self-merit. A friend once told me who we're talking to Christ about, he said, God helps those who, who help the, themselves. God helps those who help themselves. Have you heard that before? Does that thought resonate in your mind? Well, this is absolutely not true. This is a lie. It's the opposite, actually. God helps those who cannot help themselves. This is the new paradigm. It is, this is a new way of looking at things. And to my brothers and sisters, grateful what a privilege it is to preach the Bible week after week. So grateful. 
I want to encourage us in this way. We are new wineskin. Therefore, we have new wine in us. However, that new wine, what is what happens to the new wine? It expands, expands, and expands. As Jesus becomes more influential in our lives and takes over our lives, takes over how we think and talk and act and invest our time and our monies, it, he expands us as he, as he confronts us about sin. He expands us as things and circumstances change around us. He expands us, and guess what? It stretches us, and it may not feel good. But don't worry, good news, you're not going to burst. All right? God is not going to burst you. This is simply describes the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Disciples are stretched. We're called, it's the word in the Bible, sanctified. We become more like the new wine in us. It's amazing. If it's hard right now for you, a good work is happening in you right now. If it's hard for you right now, be encouraged. A good work is happening in you right now. Now, the third and final group I like to address is specifically Evergreen Baptist Church, our church family. Okay? This is, this is I want to address our church. I want to give you some reflections on our church here. Providentially, I believe the hand of God has been building up his church here at Evergreen Baptist Church of the San Gabriel Valley by taking us through a paradigm shift. I believe the Lord has been shifting gears for us and taking us to a paradigm shift. And in, in giving Evergreen Baptist Church clarity of focus, some of you may recall, if you were here, in January of 2020, I think I said that this is the year of clarity the year of clarity, where God has given us 2020 spiritual vision to see things more accurately. And who knew in March of, a couple months later, March of 2020, COVID season would begin for us here in California. And and I believe that we transition out of COVID. We've, we're moving forward here, right? We're moving forward. Things are opening up. But I think it's important to look backwards and see what did we actually learn? So we don't say, all right, phew, we got over that now. What was the Lord teaching us? How was he fine-tuning our spiritual prescription, right? We need to understand this. And as a pastor, I've been praying and thinking through this for our church family and some probing questions to ask you, okay? Number one, prior to COVID and transition, what was Evergreen SGV known for? What comes to mind for yourself? How would others answer this question? Take a mental note or write it down so you could kind of meditate on these things. Prior to COVID and transition, what was Evergreen SGV known for? All right, number two. Today, what is Evergreen Baptist Church of San Gabriel Valley about? What, what is the emphasis that the Lord has been doing here? What comes to mind? What are we known for? What do you think of that the emphasis has been happening? What pillars have been being, are being erected at our local church here? Okay, I'm going to share some of my thoughts on what I see clearly happening. Number one, Christ is our foundation. Undisputed foundation of this local church here. 
You cannot come to the Lord's Day and not hear about Jesus Christ. You cannot come to the Lord's Day and not sing about Jesus Christ. You cannot come here without evangelistic prayers and praying for other churches and, and, and other body parts throughout the world. Jesus Christ is the undisputed foundation of our church. So if you're visiting and you're thinking, huh, is this a place for me? Christ is our foundation of our local church here. Undisputed foundation. And we're about discipleship to become more like him. We want to be a wineskin that stretch, stretching, and we're going to walk with each other and how, how the Lord does that. Number two, I believe that the Lord has been elevating the ministry of the word here at Evergreen Baptist Church of San Gabriel Valley. Whether it's from the pulpit, whether it's an ace, whether it's biblical counseling, whether it's for the youth and children, that has been our aim. How do we elevate the ministry to work, particularly to our people here, specifically to grow and disciple our people here? Look around, kind of observe some of these things. Number three, I believe that we're half a step closer to eldership now. Bible commands the church should be led by elders. And this new bylaw, I'm so excited, is a half a step towards that direction. It's going to happen. And, and look what the Lord is doing. It's amazing. It's been, a, it's been a journey. We started trying to go down the eldership route, for those of you guys who weren't here, probably, perhaps in 2018. And then just observing the people, I was like, ah, we're not quite ready for this yet. We did the teaching, we did the town halls, we did a lot of one-on-one conversations. Well, now it's time. We're getting a lot closer. Now it's time, now that we're coming out of this season. That's what the Lord is doing. Number four, we have a Spanish language ministry. On September 4th, we've already been having our, our, our ACE classes with the Spanish language brothers and sisters but we're having a historic day on September 4th. We're having our first Spanish language worship service. And this is significant. These are undeniable things that the Lord has been doing here. I think it's important for us to see as a church family what's happening. Because I do realize there's been change. There's been people coming in, people coming out. I realize that there have been different programs, but Understand, these are some significant pillars that have been established and are being more established by the Lord. Final question, I want to ask this question. If the Lord would strip us down and all that we are left with is Jesus in his body, would you be content? Would you be content? It's a very important question. No bells, no whistles. Jesus and brothers and sisters who are committed to Jesus. Will that excite you? Right now in Ethiopia, there is no church building for a couple of churches, evidently. That day could come someday for us, but would you be satisfied having Jesus and other brothers and sisters with you? So at the end of the day, the Lord is doing it. It's not me. It's not any other leader. The Lord has been doing providential things to shift the paradigm here at Evergreen Baptist Church. He loves Evergreen. It's so clear to me. The more I get to pray and think about the church, he loves us very much. Amen? Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for how clear you make it that you cause all things for good to work together to those who love you, to those who are called according to your purpose, to those who are foreknown and predestined to become conformed to the image of your son. We know you're doing a good work. We know this and we believe this. Thank you for your providential and sovereign hand, how you're perfecting us. Jesus, you are the foundation and you said upon this rock, upon you, I will build my church. And we thank you and acknowledge that you're doing this. Thank you for the good things in our lives as well. But Lord, forgive us if we've made these ultimate things in our lives. If we got confused, if we lost sight of who you are. Forgive us for taking lesser things as ultimate things. Family, friends, money, work, success, property, programs, even anything, Lord. Help us to see you clearly as the undisputed foundation of our lives, individually, but also corporately as a church. Thank you, Lord, for your word and your kindness to us. Thank you for the grace where sinners could come to you and receive the free gift of salvation. I pray for any non-believer here that their hearts will be filled with the Spirit, given newness of life, new spiritual visions so they could see Jesus as the Lord and Savior. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.